Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Stockman. If you've liked my first half dozen episodes, definitely subscribe to the podcast on your podcast app so you don't miss new episodes every other Monday. I'm also open to any feedback or suggestions for guests. You can email me at hallowedgroundpod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. On today's episode, I'll be talking to Scott Crawford, the Director of Operations at the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum in St. Mary's, Ontario, Canada. Scott reached out to me via the podcast's Twitter account, and I'm always down for a great baseball conversation. Baseball has always been my favorite sport, so it was fun for me to learn more about the history and legends of the sport north of the border. After I talk to Scott, I'll be sharing more information on the 1991 Youth Canadian National Baseball Team during this episode's overtime segment. Be sure to stay tuned after Scott and I's conversation for information about this legendary Canadian team. I hope you enjoy Episode 7. Today on the show, we have Scott Crawford, Director of Operations at the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Scott, how are you? I'm doing really well. How are things with you guys? Doing well, Scott. Thank you. I figured we could start with your background because I was reading on the website. You started out as an intern at the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and then kind of worked your way up to director. So it's been a couple decades now, I believe. How did that process come about? And can you talk about your experience getting involved with the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame? Yeah, it was a, it's been a great experience. Like I said, I've been here for a couple of decades. I'm, I'm lucky to be here. Basically, I started as a volunteer back in 1999 and I was going to college. I love baseball. I lived about an hour and a half from St. Mary's where the Hall of Fame is. And I called them up and I said, do you need volunteers? And of course, like every museum or, or nonprofit charitable organization, they said yes. And I know my baseball. So I came in here and started giving tours on weekends in the summer and, and then uh, helped organize the collection a little bit. Then I went back to school and, and you're right. I needed an internship for my third year of college in my sports administration program. And uh, I call again, I called up John Harleton, who was the executive director here at the time. And, I said, hey, John, and we knew each other, obviously, because the volunteering the year before. And I said, I need to come work for free for you. And he said, well, that's fantastic, because they knew me, they had confidence in me. And uh, it was key. They ended up, uh, I, I always laugh, they ended up giving me $750 a month payment before taxes. So I moved to St. Mary's and was living off uh, $684 Canadian dollars a month. It was uh, quite a unique experience. Definitely. I studied sport management as well and just graduated. And I, I was an intern up in Omaha, Nebraska for part of COVID. And it was quite an experience. And I did much more than I signed up for and loved every minute of it. So how did you first get into baseball? Because I know I grew up going to games. I went to my first Royals game when I was six months old, which is very young and going to games with my dad and my family. So how did that kind of love for baseball start for you? Yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, I my older brother played soccer growing up. Of course, as the younger brother tag along, um, I started playing soccer as a young child. And then all all of a sudden, I said to my parents, "I want to play baseball." And they were like, "Why?" You know, because we were a soccer family. That's my older brother played, and and uh, I I got into baseball. My, my dad and my mom aren't uh, big baseball lovers. My grandfather was. And I never met my grandfather. So they're saying it sort of skipped a generation from the love of baseball. And uh, I picked it up. And truly, I, I remember, I'll say 1986, I was 11 years old. And that's when I started to fall in love with baseball. So maybe a little bit on the later side. But I can't remember why. It was probably because the Blue Jays won their first division in 1985. And they were pretty darn good in the 80s. And uh, like a lot of kids, 
fell in love with baseball in the mid '80s because of the Blue Jays, and and I haven't looked back since. Yeah, those Blue Jays were playing my Royals, and the Royals got the best of you in '85, but <laughs> yeah. that was not in comparison to the Blue Jays winning twice in the '90s. So it sounds like me and you were around the same age when our favorite childhood team won the World Series because I was. I was a junior in high school when the Royals won in 2015, and that was just super special. And uh, it sa- sounds like you would have been around that age as well in the early 90s. Yeah, yeah, it was it was great. Again, you know, the, the Jays went on a long streak of winning winning seasons, finishing off in the two World Series, and and it was uh, it was a great time for the Blue Jays. And same with same with your Royals. I mean, they they were they were great in the mid 80s with George Brett and Willie Wilson and and many many more. And uh, and then the, in 2015, they had all those great draft picks. And they developed them, and you guys went to back-to-back World Series, which is which is very very hard to do. Yeah, and played the Blue Jays again in 2015. I forgot about that. How they played in the championship series. Can you talk about the town of St. Mary's a little bit? Because I did some research, and it's a fairly small town up in Ontario, but it sounds like it has a lot of baseball history with it. Could you talk about the town of St. Mary's? Yeah, I mean St. Mary's is 7,000 people, so it's a it's a very small town in southern Ontario for people not from the area. I, a big picture, it's halfway between Toronto and Detroit. So you, you can picture those two major cities in the middle that is basically St. Mary's or a couple hours from each, each major center. It, Southern Ontario is where baseball started in, in Canada, from Beachville and Woodstock and Hamilton and London and Guelph. They're all cities sort of within an hour of St. Mary's. And, and that's where baseball started in the mid-1850s, or sorry, earlier than that, but in the mid-1850s. And it was the perfect location. It used to be in Toronto Hall of Fame, but they wanted to go more to a small town, similar to Cooperstown, obviously. It's in a very small village. And they wanted to really get into southern Ontario where, where baseball did start. That's cool. Do you know how it spread from the upper northeast of the United States up into Canada? Or how did that process go? There's a whole bunch of stories and theories um, with details and whatnot. I mean, basically, I mean, the first notice of baseball in Canada was back in New Brunswick in the in the 1700s, they talked about the game of ball, but no real detail. The uh, There was a game in Hamilton in Southern Ontario in 1819. Beachville, Ontario had a, one of the first recorded games of baseball in 1838. And that's is just outside of St. Mary's. That's one of the reasons they picked St. Mary's is the proximity of this this well-documented game from 1838. And, and there was a lot of, uh, you know, they're called world championships and big championships because back then it was really hard to travel around much, but yeah, basically the state of New York, state of Michigan, Ontario, um, they're all relatively easy to travel through. So, you know, they played um, Ohio as well, obviously, and they all played, uh, they all played each other in the, the 1800s. It's fun for me to think about those days and just how different baseball would have been, but then also it's the same like 90 feet, same rules in a lot of ways. So that's kind of interesting how it changes and it's changed a lot, but it still has those same dimensions a lot of the times and same rules in a lot of ways. So that's kind of neat to me. I wanted to talk about the museum and how it has ball fields around it. I believe there's four fields and it sounds like they have been renovated or are being renovated through a grant from the Blue Jays and some other people. Could you talk about that? Because I think that's really neat to have that support from the community. Yeah, we're really big on kids playing baseball here, which which everywhere is in the province and in North America as well, you know, because that's the future of our game. I mean, you and I love baseball, but, you know, we're not 10 years old and the 10-year-old kid playing ball and falling in love with it for the first time or continuing. Um, we have four baseball fields here. Uh, Premier Diamonds is about a thousand events over a, over a regular summer here. 
starting mid-April right to the end of October. And that's sort of our ball season because of our weather. And it's it's fantastic. We won regulation-sized ball field, which would be as, as big as any major league park um, in dimensions where all the uh, older teenagers or career games are played. And then we got uh, three little smaller where, again, all the kids all the way down to four-year-olds up to uh, sort of mid-teenage years. And even we play a lot of uh, slow pitch and softball on the diamonds as well. We just um, move the bases around and and whatnot to get all that going. But it was really big. It was part of the process and part of the reason St. Mary's won the Hall of Fame is because we had this land donated by the St. Mary's Cement Company. And it allowed us to, uh, we built one ball field first and then we built two more ball fields and then we built a fourth ball field. And uh, now we're in a room, we have a flat space. So we can't go more than four ball fields, but it's a tremendous, uh, tremendous benefit to the Hall of Fame. Teams come and play, people visit the museum. And then after, after, before they go in the museum, they go out and, and watch a game of baseball. They sit on the grass, there's berms around the outfield, just sit out there on the lawn on an afternoon, sunny afternoon, and, and watch a game of baseball. There's just pretty much the best thing in the world. Yeah, there's nothing better than that for sure. And it sounds like the museum itself, the interior, was renovated recently. Is that right? Yeah, back in 2018, we were closed for the year. Uh, we've been thinking through the process. Obviously, it takes three or four years before construction starts to get the process done and, and the money raised and whatnot. So it probably started in about 2015. We started really putting the plans in place. Um, these renovations started November, 2017, and they were, we had our grand opening April, 2019. So it took about a year and a half for the whole construction, but we only missed really one, one season of, of museum openings. We did three projects sort of thing. We renovated the old museum. We expanded by 2,500 square feet uh, new museum space and then we renovated the uh and brought in our offices into the museum as well because they were in a different location in town and that just didn't work very well so we did three phases in our renovation and it's worked out fantastic that's great could you maybe share your favorite story with us where you you talked about earlier how there's a lot of parents and children and that's how the love of the game first starts but is there a specific story that stands out to you from your your years of experience there's a lot of similar ones, I guess. I mean, it's it's the fact that, you know, it's the kids and the parents and whether it's uh, wife, son, wife, daughter, father, son, doesn't matter. It's, it's the kids and the parents just enjoying themselves and learning about the game of baseball. It's it's so important. Baseball is a history sport and it's statistics like crazy, of course, but it's not the history of the game, which the, the other sports just don't have, um, even though they're all, you know, 100 years old as well. But baseball is just really into that history it's just the fact that the parents and the kids, you hear them come into the museum and, you know, our office is now upstairs. So it's unique. I can, I can stand upstairs in my office and hear some of the uh, stories that are being told inside the museum. And I just, you know, I can listen all day to them, but I got to do some work too. So uh, just reminiscing about when they played or when their grandparent played or when they saw, you know, Willie Mays or Mickey Mantle play, you know, some of the best players in the history of baseball. It's just really unique and pretty cool to listen to. That is neat. That's, I like your uh, joke there about getting some work done too, along with hearing the stories. That's uh, that's funny. I wanted to talk about some of that history and some of those famous players because growing up, I was a huge baseball history nerd. I was a big reader. And so reading some books on baseball history as a kid, and it would talk about Fergie Jenkins being like the only Canadian Hall of Famer. And then recently we've had Larry Walker be inducted into Cooperstown. So what is the impact of those two Hall of Famers from Canada how do you interact with them? How have the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame honored those two legends of baseball? 
Yeah, I mean, Fergie and Larry, you hit the nail on the head. They're our greatest two Canadians ever played Major League Baseball. Fergie was inducted into Cooperstown in 1991. And Larry, of course, was supposed to go in last year in 2020. That got delayed. Now it's going to be, a, unfortunately, a private ceremony for him and, and others in July 2021. So we can't even go down to celebrate with them. And, but ultimately, he's getting into Cooperstown. He'll be the second Canadian. Uh, when, when Fergie played the game, there were a lot less Canadians playing. Uh, probably count on a hand how many were playing during the 60s, 70s, and 80s when Fergie played. When Larry played, there were there were a lot more. And all the current guys you, you talk about, to the sort of the more recent guys, you know, the Justin Morneaux and the Jason Bays and the Joey Votto's, and you know, they looked up to Larry Walker playing the game because he was the best of the best. I mean, he won three batting titles, he won the MVP award, he won gold gloves and silver sluggers like he played in Colorado and these these guys just look up to them and 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 the kids do too I think you know like I said it's unfortunate Mm -hmm. with what's going on that Canada won't really be able to be down in Cooperstown and celebrate Larry this year because there would it would have been the biggest Canadian attendance since 1991 when Fergie went in and there would have been thousands of kids celebrating Canadian baseball and and we can still do it up here in Canada I mean it's going to be broadcast on the uh MLB network and, and I assume maybe Sportsnet, the sports station up here will pick it up, but it won't be the same as, as being in the crowd and, and giving a stand ovation to Larry when he comes to the uh comes to the stage. But it's still gonna be big for Canada because it's still gonna be the top sports story of the summer in baseball is is the Cooperstown induction. And you know, Derek Jeter is gonna be the headliner, but uh, like Larry Walker is is an all-around great player that can equal Derek Jeter. Definitely. Yeah, it's it's fun to think about the impact that he had on so many of those current Canadian stars like Joey Votto you mentioned. My dad and I argue about Joey Votto and whether or not he's an Hall of Famer in Cooperstown or if he will be, but I don't think there's any doubt he'll be a Canadian Baseball Hall of Famer. So can you kind of talk about him? Because he's been probably the best Canadian player of my lifetime. So what impact has Joey Votto had on not only the youth of Canada, but just Canadian baseball in general? Joey is one of those dedicated players to his craft he doesn't um he doesn't enjoy the spotlight or the limelight like uh he loves cincinnati he was drafted as a catcher by the reds when he was 18 years old out of a high school in toronto um his first game in the big leagues he actually played left field but uh we know him as a first baseman even though he was drafted as a catcher of all all positions he, he's gonna end up being one of the greatest canadians ever by far um and one of the best hitters in, in baseball history, and especially this generation. Like they talk a lot of times about a 10 year peak period. And if you look at him from when he broke in until till the last year or two, he, he, there's no player that compares his OPS and his batting average are top one or two in the game for the last decade. You know, Mike Trout is up there, of course, as well. And, but Joey, he plays baseball. He doesn't necessarily like interviews. He doesn't necessarily want to interact a lot. He just wants to concentrate on hitting playing the game well, playing good defense. And and he, he's he been great to us. He's won the Tip O'Neill Award, which we give out seven times. That's the top Canadian player of the year award. We've gone down to Cincinnati, present him the award. And and uh, he, he's been great to us every time we see him. And and right now, I mean, he is just, you know, he's, he, his swing is uh, is set. And of course, he's, uh, he's in on the IL right now. He broke his thumb. But um, when he comes back, I expect him to do some more great things with the Reds. Yeah. 
is now the the time where there's been the most Canadian players or what was kind of that peak? Because you were talking about how Fergie Jenkins, there weren't a lot of Canadian players, but I think now there's a lot more, probably several dozen, I would say. So how has that kind of changed over the years? Yeah, it's, it's varied quite a bit. I mean, amazingly enough, the year with the most Canadians in baseball history was 1884. Okay. <laughs> so you have to go back and look at your research. Got to go way back. Your research there, but they added, uh, there was more than just the two leagues back in 1884. So it was sort of a one-year peak and then uh, back down. Um, this year, there's a dozen Canadians in the big leagues. There was uh, – it got up into the low 20s back in uh, the early 2000s. Um, we had a bit of a bit of a run there for a lot of players. But if you look at our, you know, our talent, we've had an all-star in the all-star game every year but one in the last 20 years. Wow. You know, we've won uh, – you know, MVP awards, three MVP awards in the last 20 years. Cy Young Award, Eric Gagne won the Cy Young in 2003. Jason Bay won the Rookie of the Year. We have a lot of talent and a lot of upcoming talent with Josh Naylor and Mike Sroka and Tyler O'Neill. And there's there's a lot of excitement. Joey's obviously 37, so he's probably on the tail end of his career. He's only played 15 amazing years. Uh, but there's a lot of young talent coming up, including uh, Paul Quantrill with the, with the Indians as well. You're right. That kind of reminded me of some names that I didn't necessarily think were Canadian, but you're right. They they have Canadian citizenship like Vlad Jr. does or some other people like Mike Soroka. And I think that's really interesting how just people people may not necessarily know that about those guys, but they are from Canada and were born there. And uh, that's kind of a neat tie into Canadian baseball. So it's great that they're having more and more of an impact and having award-winning seasons. And they're going to be many of them probably inducted into your Hall of Fame in 20, 30 years. Yeah, and I can't, I can't believe I left off the two Blue Jays, like you mentioned. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was born in Montreal, although raised in the Dominican Republic um, right. with his family, but he was born in Montreal. And, and Jordan, Jordan Romano, who's a relief pitcher with the Blue Jays, he's from he's from Markham, which is part of Toronto. So uh, he's pitching in his hometown, his home backyard, which is which is great. Uh, Josh Naylor, who plays with the Indians, actually he's from Mississauga, which is right beside Toronto. He made his major league debut in Toronto. So uh, that was an amazing, that would have been an amazing moment for, for Josh. I uh, was reminded of James Paxton too. He threw his no hitter up in Canada um, against Toronto. So uh, that's another Canadian doing something big in Canada, which I think is always fun. Yeah. He's from uh, British Columbia and, uh, he's the second Canadian ever throw a no hitter after Dick Fowler back in 1941. And of course, but he did it in Toronto. In, in some injury trouble, obviously, he just had Tommy John surgery about a month ago, so he's out for this year. But he's still he when he's healthy, he's got a lightning left arm, and uh, whoever gets him back next year will be uh, will be lucky to have him. What's been the impact of? the Blue Jays and the Montreal Expos, of course, that left in the mid 2000s. What has been the impact of those teams on Canada? Because baseball seems to have grown in popularity in Canada, I would presume, among uh, maybe people of your age growing up in the time when the Blue Jays were winning world championships and stuff like that. So can you talk about the impact of those MLB teams in Canada? For sure. I mean, the Montreal Expos were the first. Uh, 1969, they started. Uh, Charles Bronfman, Brought them, uh, was the main owner back then. He, he brought the team alive. Jim Fanning, John McHale were the main executives on board. And, you know, they unfortunately in 2004, they left. It was a long time coming. Uh, each year they sort of said this might be the last year. And then finally after 2004, of course, they moved to Washington. Very sad. The Expos had so many great players um, in, in their system from Gary Carter and Tim Raines and Andre Dawson and Steve Rogers and Tim Wallach and Vladimir Guerrero and I go on and on. I mean, Larry Walker started with 
the Expos as well. You know, there's just so much talent in Montreal. It just, it just didn't work. Obviously, uh, Major League Baseball took over ownership and then obviously they moved to Washington, but their, their memories, you know, it's the second topic here. And sometimes the first topic here, people walk in the doors because they just love the Expos. They love the, the logo and the retro look of the hat and, and whatnot. And, uh, but the Blue Jays, I mean, the Blue Jays came in 1977. The, uh, they're almost the San Francisco Giants. If you look back, they were going to be called the Toronto Giants. And San Francisco's team was going to move here. But that got squashed last minute. So the Bats and CIBC, the bank, came and uh, brought the Blue Jays um, into Toronto in 77. Uh, they struggled for a few years, of course, as most expansion teams do. But they, uh, again, in 84, they turned the corner. We're creating 84, 85, the one division. And, of course, 92, 93, the World Series. So they really brought the uh, this area, obviously, into baseball. Being in St. Mary's, being halfway between Toronto and Detroit, obviously, we had a ton of Detroit fans before the Blue Jays came. And even with uh, Cleveland, if you just go south over the lake, you hit Cleveland. Um, so it's not too far away truly either, but you know, most people fell in love with the Blue Jays and, and, and they've had many, many great players as well, obviously over the years. And, and, um, you know, we're, we're happy they're, they're still here. We hope the Expos come back one day and, and have baseball back in uh, two major league teams. Cause the only other affiliate team right now is out in Vancouver and that's the Blue Jays, uh, single team. So we need to, uh, we need more affiliated professional baseball in Canada. Yeah, I agree. I know uh, Montreal is always on a list of possible expansion sites or like relocation sites and who knows what will happen in the next decade or so. But I think it'd be great if Canada got another professional team and uh, those people were able to cheer on another another franchise up there because the, the Expos were great. They just they never won the World Series, but they always had those great players and made the playoffs several times. So definitely that's that's something to hopefully keep in mind if you're Major League Baseball. Yeah, they had the best record in 1994 when that when that strike happened, and you know they were on head to head with the with the Yankees with the best record in the American League. Sure, there were still six weeks to go in the season, so anything can happen. But it sure looked like it was going to be an Expo Yankee uh, World Series, and and that was our, our chance because you're right, the Expo has only made the playoffs in 1981, even though all their great players. And 94 looked like the year for the Expos, and and unfortunately because of the strike, it it didn't happen for anyone because of the strike. But yeah, uh, it would have been a great World Series. Definitely. I wanted to ask you about Jackie Robinson because I know he's an inductee of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and people may not realize this, but he played for the Montreal Royals. And so I I knew that coming from Kansas City and he played for the Kansas City Monarchs and then Montreal Royals and then the Brooklyn Dodgers. So what was the impact of him in Montreal? And then were there any other Negro League ties to to Canada? Yeah, I mean, Jackie Robinson, we, we all know the sort of the modern day uh, color barrier he broke in 1947 with Brooklyn. And you're right, a lot of people sort of stop the timeline there and don't go back one more year. But 1946, the branch Ricky and the Dodgers were looking for somewhere for Jackie to play where he would be accepted. And they picked Montreal, which was a great place. It was a triple-A team for, for the Dodgers. And uh, they won the, I'm not going to title, right, but they won the world championship that year for, for triple-A. So he really brought them on. And, and he, to this day, I mean, his wife, Rachel, still quotes how great Montreal was and how much the city allowed them to be who they are and, and didn't bother them or interfere with them with what they were doing. They just, Jackie wanted to play baseball. And, uh, and he, he was very, very good at it, as we all know. And Montreal was just, you know, the right place at the right time. And, and uh, Rachel and Jackie 
Jackie loved it. And, and uh, there's, you know, that's obviously the main story for uh, Negro League Baseball in Canada. There was, uh, there was a few other stories. The uh, uh, Chatham All-Stars from 1934, prior to Jackie Robinson, was sort of the top, uh, one of the top amateur teams in the province of Ontario. They won the provincial championship that year. And uh, there's a lot of barnstorming teams that, that moved through Southern Ontario and, and into uh, New York to play. But um, those are the main two. Okay. I wanted to talk now about uh, COVID and its impact on the museum. And it, COVID is a bad word in a lot of circles, and it's been a, a heavy impact on Ural's museum, I know. So can you talk about um, how things started out last March or so, or maybe even earlier, and how the museum has been impacted? Yeah, it's it's impacted us greatly. I mean, we, like we mentioned earlier, we just opened the brand new museum in April 2019, had a fantastic year in 2019, showing off the new exhibits in the new museum, and, and we built special event space so we could hold groups of busloads of people for different types of events, for dinners or banquets or awards, ceremonies or, or meetings or whatever. Um, one of our main revenue generators was this new space we added in 20 uh, when we opened for 2019, and then we announced our inductees in uh, February 2020, like we do every year. Thinking June 2020, we'll have our induction ceremony, like we've had every year. And then in March 2020, the world shut down. Um, everything shut down. Everything got delayed. Um, our induction ceremony, we postponed it from June. We're thinking, okay, let's have it in the fall of 2020. Obviously, that didn't happen. And that's our biggest weekend. That's, you know, that's we were going to induct Justin Morneau from British Columbia, two Blue Jays and John Olderud and Dwayne Ward. And then the Montreal Expos announcer, Jacques Doucette. So we have four huge headliners all lined up. We have it outside of 10 on the ball field. It's a huge baseball celebration. And, and that got shut down. Our museum got shut down. Our ball fields got shut down. Uh, we ended up last summer getting the museum open for eight weeks, which, which was great. Uh, it wasn't very busy, but we wanted to be able to offer the opportunity for baseball fans to come out and talk baseball and get a little normal life happening in Ontario. And, and still today, our, uh, our museum is closed to the public. We're in a state of lockdown in Ontario uh, right now until June 2nd. And ball fields are closed, museums are closed. And right now, our induction ceremony isn't happening in 2021. Now we're going to induct our 2020 class in June of 2022, which seems really long time from when we actually announced them in, in February of 2020. It's, it's really too bad for the, the four guys because they, they've been announced as inductees, but we haven't actually been able to honor them. You know, Fergie Jenkins puts the new jacket on their shoulders with our, with our crest on it and their plaque on the wall and their families and their kids. And we really didn't want to have to wait till 2022, but, with the border issues and with the crowd issues, it's just, just shut the process down and, and we had no other choice. So it's, it's really drastically affected us. Our, our major weekend and our, our two main revenue streams have been really suffering. Yeah, that's, that's too bad, Scott. I know it's certainly uh, been a little different up in Canada as far as COVID goes and the restrictions and things, but I think hopefully getting back to normalcy sometime soon, hopefully in being able to open back up and see people playing outside again in the summer, hopefully, and coming to those ball fields. And I think that'll be a great, great thing to see people smiling again, having fun playing catch, getting to see the artifacts inside and honoring Justin Morneau was a, a great player. Obviously he was a big time player during my childhood and getting to play against my Royals quite a bit. So he was a great, great player from Canada. I want to pivot now to talking about any like educational aspects of the museum. I know there's the Harry Simmons research library, 
um, affiliated with you guys. And can you talk about that and talk about anything that you all do geared towards kids or tours or anything um, that the museum does in those fashions? For sure, yes. The uh, part of our expansion was the Harry Simmons Memorial Library. It holds our library collection, which holds about 6,000 books dating back to the 1880s. And plus our archive center where we, we store all the artifacts and look after them properly on the shelving with the proper humidity and climate. Um, so it's a big, uh, it's quite a large room. But our, our library, it's uh, Harry, sorry, Harry Simmons is one of our Hall of Famers. He's very, he worked at Montreal for the International League, right from uh, the, about 1939 up until the, until the 80s. He's involved in baseball and he did everything with the International League. Um, including he was one of the main uh, media people during the 46 season with um, Jackie Robinson with the Royals. So that would have been a, a huge undertaking. And so his collections in our Hall of Fame, tons of original research papers and documents from his time with baseball. He also liked to collect a lot of older documents um, from the 1800s and early 1900s. So we have those documents as well. It's a two-piece library. The Center for Canadian Baseball Research is sort of runs the library. It's a group of volunteers led by Andrew North and our, our Hall of Famer, Bill Humber. And they basically, they're our research gurus. They know everything about everything. They know our library and our 6,000 books inside and out. Um, but basically it's a research library, similar to what Cooperstown has. You request research time, you come on in, you can do your research. And uh, again, we had several requests and it was starting to get busier until uh, until COVID hit. And then obviously that's had to shut down because you can't have the public in the building. So it's, it's, it's a fantastic area. Again, we didn't have it before and we were able to put in the, uh, in the expansion. So that's sort of the history, the history box of baseball, which is obviously what baseball museum is. Kids wise, it's really, we just stress the, uh, like the outdoor play of the game. If we were to get a school group or a, a church club or a summer camp, we always take them outside and make sure we have a fun game of baseball play, you know, run around. That's what kids need. And we do that. And then we bring them in. And it's really important to teach the kids the history. A lot of them don't really grasp or like the history. And that's why you sort of got to push it on them a little bit harder. You don't want to drill into them because then they'll really hate it. But uh, you just got to touch on the key aspects because baseball history is, is important to understand the game. Um, the kids like today's players, you know, they like Mookie Betts and Mike Trout and and Cunha and Vladimir Guerrero, and, which is great because that's today's game. We talk about today's game as well, but, you know, they don't know Larry Walker. He stopped playing in 2004, which you and I is not very long ago. We remember he was one of the best players. And, and Fergie Jenkins, I mean, he stopped playing in, I believe, 83. And so nobody remembers him. That was such a long time ago. But, uh, you know, we have a display for the current Canadians as well in the museum, you know, because it has Vladimir Guerrero stuff. It has Mike Soroka, Josh Naylor, Cal Quantrill. Uh, Russell Martin, who just retired. Abraham Toro, who plays with the Astros. Rowan Wick, who pitched the Cubs last year. So we have a lot of uh, current stuff out on, too, because that's sort of the first thing they come to the museum. We can grab the kids and get their attention by showing them players that they know about. And then we then we go back in the museum further, and we really talk about the, uh, the history. I like that approach because, yeah, they're not going to know Larry Walker if they haven't, if they weren't a baseball history nerd like I was or it seems like you were. So it's like... You got to show them what they do know first, the Vlad Jr. and Mike Soroka, and then kind of build off that. So I like that. What are some of the other artifacts that you all have in the museum that people might be excited about? Yeah, there's a couple that really stand out. I mean, Babe Ruth, of course, we have a Babe Ruth autograph bat and baseball on display. That's one of the highlights because everyone knows Babe Ruth. Even if you don't like baseball or don't love baseball, you say the name Babe Ruth and everyone knows he was a baseball player and one of the best ever, if not the greatest home run hitter 
ever. So people know the name. And so that's really a highlight for everyone to see it. And people sort of gravitate to that. Of course, you say it. Pretty much the, one of the coolest artifacts, I think, is, is from the Joe Carter's home run when he won the World Series. We have the, the actual home plate that he stepped on um, that Paul Beeston donated to us from the team. And then we have Joe's helmet that actually fell off his head at first base. If you watch the video, uh, Rich Hacker, the face, first base coach, ran back, picked up the helmet, fell off Joe's head when he's jumping at first base. And uh, Rich held on to the helmet as Joe <laughs> bounced around the bases for that home run. And we actually, Joe donated the helmet to us when we inducted him in the Hall of Fame. So we had the home plate and the helmet from Joe Carter's World Series winning home run. And, and to me, that's, you know, that's probably the coolest artifacts we have because that's really the biggest you can't have a bigger hit in baseball. Like as much as you might have a home run or a walk-off single, that's a regular season game. That's fantastic. They go crazy, the fans. But Joe Carter won the World Series with his hit. And there's not a bigger hit you can do in, in any baseball game. And we have two of the key artifacts. No doubt. That's awesome. That was one of the clips I would watch as a kid because I was trying to learn about baseball history. And it was Carlton Fisk and Joe Carter were the two main, like, uh, video clips I would watch to do their celebrations along with them. So that's kind of a fun way that I was involved. And it's really awesome that the helmet and a home plate are at the museum. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. I mean, yeah, Fisk is home running, waving a fair around the foul pole, and, and Joe was jumping. And and uh, I mean, there's a lot of key hits, obviously, but again, you have that. And um, we also, one other thing that I'm looking at here as I'm sitting in the museum is um, we had the home plate for the last ever Montreal Expo game. Uh, from 2004 they dug it out of the ground and and we have it in our collection now it's it's a great keepsake it's obviously a sad one because it meant the end of the expos but it's, again it's one of those keepsakes that it's a home plate until you know the history of it and why it's here and then you find out how, how cool an artifact it is yeah i think that's part of what sports museums do is they tell the happy stories like joe carter but then kind of the sad pieces too because that needs to be remembered as well so i think that's that's awesome that you have that home plate along with joe carter I wanted to talk now about your presence on social media. That's how we first connected. You sent me a Twitter DM of all things, and that's how we set up this interview. So can you talk about how the museum's presence on, especially Twitter, but the rest of social media has helped the museum? Yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. And social media is the way everyone goes. And we have Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're the newest on Instagram, so we don't have quite as many followers, but we're, I think we're almost up to 10,000 followers on Twitter, which is, which is fantastic. It's one of those things where it just gets the word out. It's a new thing. People want to see information quick and they want to see just little bits of it. And if it interests them, they'll look further. Not everyone has time to read huge articles. And I think that's why Twitter has just so many characters on it. You can just sort of get a snippet of what you want. And if it interests you, then you, you click on a link and read the rest. But it's really helped us. I mean, we promote Canadian baseball. I mean, it's inductees in our Hall of Fame. It's what Baseball Canada does. It's what the Blue Jays do. It's what teams of Canadians on it. I mean, those are our, our key highlights we hit, um, anything with Canadian baseball. Um, but we also get into, you know, a bit of other stuff. Like, obviously, uh, we share things with our, because we're sports museums and general interest in the same type thing. Um, so really anything to do with uh, baseball museums and sport museums and, and Canadian baseball. And, and Facebook and Instagram are the same. They're working along. They're getting more popular on Instagram page. And uh, so we tend to share a lot of pictures on that as well. Yeah, I will definitely put links to those social media pages on uh, the podcast uh, show notes when I upload it. So great. Yeah, no, we always want more, more followers, the better, right? For you and me. So it's uh, fantastic. What's that trophy behind you? I'm curious. Yeah, 
This one, um, that's the uh, 1991 World Youth Championship trophy that Baseball Canada won. It was out in, uh, it's the first world championship Canada ever won. And it was actually out in, uh, in Manitoba, the, the world championship. And uh, so double special, that was the first one Canada won and it was in Canada. And that's Baseball Canada gave us a trophy and beside it, which you might really see are the rings the players got and the, the medal that they got for winning the, uh, winning the championship. So it's pretty cool. Definitely. Scott, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time. And as we wrap up here, do you want to tell people where they can find the museum, both on social media and in person? Yeah, for sure. I mean, again, we're located in St. Mary's, Ontario. When the borders open, come on up, visit Ontario. And uh, again, we're halfway between Toronto and Detroit, basically two hours each way. So whichever way you come into, into Canada, you can um, um, probably you guys will come from Detroit way, but whichever way you come in, um, we're about two hours from uh, Detroit. And our base, our website is baseballhalloffame.ca, so you can find everything about that. And our Twitter is CDN Baseball HOF, probably our number one media, social media feed. So you can check out that one as well. Follow us along and, and retweet and, and like all our, all our posts. Awesome. Yeah, my dad and I are talking about going on a baseball trip of some sort to check off um, some more stadiums that we haven't been to. And Detroit is on that list for both of us, I think. And then my dad has been to Canada, but I have not. So I'll need to make it up to Toronto. And hopefully when I do, I'll stop by St. Mary's and the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. So thank you for your time, Scott. This has been great. All right, thanks for having me on. Let's do it again. For sure. For Episode seven's Overtime segment, I'll be discussing the 1991 Canadian National Youth Baseball Team which won the World Youth Baseball Championship. As Scott explained during our interview, the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame has the trophy from this event in their collection. This team is fondly remembered by Canadian baseball fans, and in 2014, the team won Baseball Canada's 50 for 50 voting contest. This group of 16 to 18 year olds certainly captivated their nation, and I'm excited to remember their championship run 30 years later. The team came together in Saskatchewan during the national team camp, and they lost to the Netherlands in an exhibition game, but beat them 10 to zero in the first tournament game. And so the international tournament was held in Brandon, Manitoba, a southern Canadian city of about 50,000 near the border with North Dakota. The competition was stiff and featured the Canadian team, plus teams from the U.S., Australia, Taiwan, Nigeria, Cuba, Brazil, Mexico, the Netherlands, and Italy. Canada went 7-2 in round-robin competition, with 70 runs scored and 32 runs allowed. The team had an exciting come-from-behind win against the American team that featured two current Major League managers. A.J. Hinch and Aaron Boone. Canada trailed the U.S. 4-0, but a go-ahead home run by Blaise LeVay, plus another homer by Toronto native Todd Betts sealed a 10-6 upset victory. An Australian victory over the Cuban team secured Canada's spot in the gold medal game against Taiwan. Daniel Brabant pitched a solid five and two-thirds innings before being relieved by Ontario native Jason Birmingham. However, the team trailed 2-0. Todd Betts hit a game-tying double and then first baseman Troy Croft sealed a 5-2 win in the gold medal in front of a home crowd of 5,000 fans. This remains Canada's only gold medal in an international baseball competition. The team was led by manager John Haar, a former minor leaguer who led Team Canada during the 1980s and was the manager of the National Baseball Institute, which helps produce MLBers Matt Stairs and Corey Koski. He was inducted into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame in 2007. Several of the players on the team played professionally, including 1997 American League All-Star Jason Dixon and Stubby Clapp, the current first base coach of the St. Louis Cardinals. The 1991 Canadian Youth National Team was inducted into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame in 1992. You can find the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame Museum online at baseballhalloffame.ca or in St. Mary's, Ontario, right between Detroit and Toronto. 
Look in this episode's show notes for the museum's website and social media pages. Thanks to Scott for being a great guest. I hope you enjoyed Episode 7 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum Podcast. If you want, you can give a 5-star rating and review for the pod. It helps our exposure on various podcast apps. Thanks in advance. I'll see you next time, sports fans.